Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. We're glad that you have come to join us here on Sunday morning on this beautiful time of, of Christmas. And I'm, our, our, our sanctuary has been decorated with uh, our Christmas decorations, and we are excited about that. And even Will is decorated for us this morning. Wayne Tuning and I were talking earlier, and Wayne said, you know what, Will's probably the only one on staff that could pull that off. And I said, let's hope he does. <laughs> I like it. I'm glad that you did it, because there is no way that a body my size could put that many checks on. <laughs> just no way. We are glad that you're here. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you please take them and turn with me to the book of Psalms, and specifically to Psalm 85. Psalm 85. This morning we are going to continue our focus on Advent, which is the season on the church calendar in, in which we look forward expectantly to Christmas and to the celebration of the birth of Christ. And each Sunday of Advent is marked by a specific theme. And, and last week, the theme that we looked at was the theme of hope. And we, we looked at that in the context of Isaiah chapter 40, the first 11 verses and specifically, we listen to the voices of hope that Isaiah writes about there in those first 11 verses. But today, our, our theme is the theme of peace. And, and if you look up the word peace in the dictionary, you'll find various connotations. Um, in general, peace carries with it the connotation of being in harmony. Um, it, it talks about being joined together. It carries with it the connotation of not being in war. The opposites of peace are words like uh, uh, disagreement and discord and, and enmity and even brokenness. But to think about peace, we, we often think about things such as being untroubled, being tranquil, content. When you, when you consider all of that, what peace is, what it's not, you come away with an understanding that all of us can run, un, truly understand why peace is so appealing particularly at Christmas time. And so as we consider the fact that at Christmas, we celebrate the birth of the one whom Isaiah would write and describe as being called the Prince of Peace, I think it is appropriate for us to think about the promise that, that, that peace, the promise that Christmas brings to us of peace. And I believe that Psalm 85 will help us in that endeavor. This is a very interesting psalm. It is rich with vivid imagery and very deep theology. Um, and according to its title, we know that it was written by one who was addressing and was offering a prayer. And, and it was a prayer that was intended to be set to music. You'll notice that the, the title there uh, in the New King James writes it this way, Prayer that the Lord will restore favor to the land. And then it was delivered to the chief of musician, to the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. And, and so one, one writer that I was reading this week talking about this song, especially how it would have been set to music, uh, would have imagined that, that a soloist would lead out with a verse, but there would be two choirs singing antiphonally across the, the, the sanctuary to one another. And one choir would be over here singing and another choir would be over there singing. And the congregation would find themselves in the middle as they would hear the soloists sing out and the choirs join. And so 
with that as a, as a possibility for how this song would have come into a choir singing, I was thinking about it this week and imagined that, that the first choir would have backed up the soloists on verses 1 through 3. And in verses 1 through 3, in my mind, the musical arrangement would have been in the major key and it would have been a, a, an upbeat song communicating the joy and the excitement that comes along with the wonderful memories that are recounted in verses 1 through 3. But then, beginning in verse 4 and moving down through verse 7, the soloist would have been joined by the other choir. And just on, on cue, on cue. <laughs> Another choir over there would be singing. And, and their circumstances would have been far from ideal. And so what you begin to note is that the, the song would have taken a very somber tone. It would have changed from the major key to the minor key. And even the, even the text and how it was being presented would go into much slower understanding. And the entire feel of the song would change. But then when you get to verse 8 and you move through the end... There's another change. The soloist would begin and both choirs would begin singing, each from each side, and it would waft over the congregation who would be seated in the middle. And the sheer volume of the voices along with the, the music would change back to the major key. The, the tempo of the song would change. And in these verses, what we would see is that there was excitement about what God was going to do in the future. Now, as I said, that's only a possibility. No one knows for sure how this psalm was sung. But as I read it to you this morning, perhaps you can imagine it being sung to you. And as you work your way through these verses, imagine, imagine that this is the setting and these are the voices that are singing out to you. Let's hear the word of God this morning. Verse 1 begins this way. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sins, Selah. You have taken away your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God, of our salvation. Cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you that we have this opportunity to come before you as the people of God to be able to open your holy word and to hear that which you have breathed out speaking to us. And we recognize that it meets us right where we are. This is not some text that's so antiquated that it has no, 
no meaning and no words for us today. Rather, just the opposite. It is right in the middle of where we live. And I pray that you would help us to understand it by the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives this morning. Help us to have ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand that truth which you are communicating to us through your Holy Word. And then, then Lord, we pray that you would help us to apply it to our lives, to live it out in such a way that it would bring glory to you and it would be good for our souls. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen. In full disclosure, we do not know exactly when this psalm was written. Scholars are pretty clear, though, that they think that this psalm was written after the Jews had been released from their 70 years of Babylonian captivity and had gone back to the land of Jerusalem and begun to rebuild the city and the nation. One Jewish scholar even puts it this way. In brief, the psalm addresses the people's return to Judah and forgiveness for their wrongdoing. This is followed by a prayer for full restoration and the psalmist's anticipation that God will bring peace and salvation. And so what we immediately note is that this psalm is written in anticipation of the restoration of peace. It was written with a look toward the future when the circumstances of the present, circumstances that were marked by brokenness and discord and hostility, when those kind of circumstances would be rectified and restored. And significantly, the hope for future peace is predicated and it is centered upon what had occurred in the past. In fact, that's how the psalm begins. I've given you an outline this morning that's, that's pretty simple in its, in its idea, but it's just to kind of break the three parts of this psalm up and to give you a heading for each one. And so the first heading that I provided for you this morning, the first point on your outline is simply this, verses 1 through 3 give us a look back. A look back. Notice that the author of this psalm in his look back addresses it to the Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And the fact that that word is capitalized tells us that the psalmist is using the covenant name of God the name Yahweh. And so Yahweh, God, the covenant God of Israel, is the one to whom this psalm is addressed. And I want you to notice the verbs that are used there in verses 1 through 3. They are all past tense. They are recalling something that, that occurred in the past and, and really is something that God had done, that Yahweh had accomplished in the past. What were those things? Well, notice the first couplet there in verse 1. The Lord had been favorable to His land. He had... He had brought back the captivity of Jacob. John Phillips notes that during the time that the Jews had been in captivity, that the land of Israel had been uninhabited, and therefore the land had, had returned to the wild with weeds growing and, and, and nothing had been cultivated. But now that the people were back in the land, it was like life from the dead. God's righteousness and, and His mercy had been clearly visible, not only in the fact that the land had been revived, but also in the fact that his people, whom he refers to here as, as Jacob, that his people had been delivered back to their homeland. But the news gets even better in verse 2 because the author recalls two more specific things that Yahweh had done. He had forgiven the iniquity of his people and he had also covered all their sin. If we consider these two verbs in that couplet, then we realize that forgiveness that the, that the people enjoyed came as a result of the fact that their sins had been covered, that, that their sins had been atoned for. That is literally what the word 
covered means. It means to be atoned for. It literally means that the debt for those sins had been paid. Such a recollection reminds us of, of what David wrote in Psalm 32 verse 1. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. But that's still not all. Notice verse 3. That the Lord had taken away all of his wrath. He had turned from the fierceness, from the hotness of his anger. Literally, he set his anger aside. In theological terms, what we, what we say is that God's wrath had been propitiated. It literally means that his wrath was appeased. His wrath was calmed. So here in verses 1 through 3, the author of this psalm looks back and he recalls what the Lord has done. And in doing so, he recounts how God had delivered his people and how he had forgiven and atoned for their transgressions and sins and how his anger and his wrath toward them had been turned aside. He is rem remembering, he is recalling the grace of God and he is reminiscing about the mercies of God. And it's right here that I want to pause. And I just want to ask you, like the psalmist, is that your recollection? Can you recall a moment in your life when you can look back and you can remember that God showed you his favor by delivering you from the darkness of your own sin into the light of his life? Can you recall a time when God forgave you of your iniquities and turned his wrath away from you? I want you to know that the peace that Christmas points to begins right there. It begins with believing that Jesus came, not just as a not just as a significant historical figure born in a manger in Bethlehem, but, but ultimately it's believing that he came to save sinners. It's believing that he came to make peace between fallen humanity and a holy God. That, that he came to deliver sinners from the darkness of the enslavement to their sin in order by living a perfect, sinless, holy life and making atonement for their sin on Calvary's cross. For believers, our confidence is that Christ took our sin and our punishment upon himself. And he did that so that we might be forgiven. And his death propitiated God's wrath toward us. It turned God's wrath away from us because of Christ's atoning sacrifice. Do you have that confidence this morning? Is that your assurance? Can you look back upon the events of Calvary and worship the Lord Jesus because you have trusted in what he did to save you. If not, then I want you to know that that is where the peace of Christmas starts. It begins with a look back to the delivering, to the atoning, to the propitiating work of the Lord Jesus on the cross. But as I mentioned, even though we look back in verses 1 through 3, the mood of this psalm changes beginning in verse 4. The thankful, glad, and jubilant chorus of verses 1 through 3 give way to a much more somber and mournful sound in the next section, a section that begins with the writer providing us with notice on your outline, a look around. He moves from a look back to a look around. Beginning in verse 4, there's a dramatic change in the tone. There's also a change in the verbs. The verbs in verses 1 through 3 were in the past tense, but you'll notice that they changed to the present tense 
beginning in verse 4, and they are also followed up by a series of questions, the nature of which gives indication that the circumstances into which the psalmist found himself were less than favorable. It's the tenor of these verses that gives scholars the reason to believe that, that this psalm was written when the Jews had come back to Jerusalem and, and they had been released from their Babylonian captivity in 538 B.C. They came back to the land and they began to rebuild. They rebuilt the temple that was there. But in their process of trying to rebuild the walls and to try to rebuild the city, they continued to come up against opposition from their neighbors, from the neighboring uh, uh, nations that were around them, opposed everything they did. And at this point, the city walls still lay in ruins. And so as, as one has written, at first the people must have felt joy at being able to return to their homeland. They would have confessed with gratitude that God had indeed restored their fortunes and forgiven their sin and turned aside his wrath. But when these first excellent beginnings broke down and the forward motion to rebuild the city and nation ceased, discouragement and even despair set in. And according to the opening chapter of Nehemiah, James Boyce writes this, that the people acknowledged frankly that they were in great trouble and disgrace. That's where the psalmist found himself, I believe. He found himself at a point of despair and at a point of discouragement on behalf of his people. Some have even read the middle section, verses 4 through 7 of this, this psalm and have explained it as a description of what spiritual depression looks like. I want you to notice the pleas of verse 4. There's a plea for restoration. There's a plea for God's anger to subside. Now, there's debate is exactly how to understand verse 4. But what cannot be debated about what the psalmist writes here is the fact that the writer is clearly begging God for a change in the circumstances of his people. The pleas of verse 4 are followed by questions in verses 5 and 6. Listen to them again. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. The obvious emphasis of these questions is that the struggle and the hardship that the psalmist and his people are going through has caused him to throw himself on the mercy of God and beg for God's intervention on behalf of his people. It leads him to beg the Lord in verse 7, show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now, I want to come back to that verse in just a moment, but before we get there, I want to ask you, how many times, how many times have you, have you found yourself living in the reality of verses 4 through 7? Now that question that I'm asking, I'm posing it to those of you who, are, who, who trusted in Christ and count yourself to be believers. You are the ones that could look back in verses 1 through 3 and remember that God has saved you through His Son that he has redeemed you from the pit, that he has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You have trusted that Christ to be your Savior. You trust that God has turned his wrath away from you and that he has saved you for Jesus' sake. And you are a believer and yet you find yourself right squarely in the middle of verses 4 through 7 looking around and being discouraged, even depressed with what you find. Perhaps you're there right now. I want you to know 
that week after week and month after month, I pray with folks who are hurting and they're broken because of circumstances in which they find themselves. Recent days, I prayed with some parents who are brokenhearted over the decisions that have been made by their children and decisions that have caused great damage to the relationship within their family. Communication has broken down and at least currently, there does not seem to appear to be any hope for improvement. In recent days, I have found myself looking into the tear-filled eyes of those who've had to say goodbye to a loved one. Someone that they will miss dearly every day of the rest of their lives. And they know that they will have to go on with their lives, but they also know that there's nothing that is going to be the same again. And they've got to figure out what the new normal is. A few nights ago, I spent quite a while talking to a friend who had just found out that his young wife has breast cancer. He and his wife, along with there are many of you in this room that know exactly what that is to go through it because you've gone through it yourself and you've had that kick to the gut that took out every ounce of air in your lungs and you know what it's like to see the wind come out of the sails of your ship and suddenly it's just listless out there and it's at the mercy of the waves and it's beating you from one side to the next and you're not sure how you're ever going to get out of it. There I say that there have been some who have even gotten to those places in their lives and just like the psalmist describes, they wonder, God, are you angry at me? Are you angry? Will your, will your wrath just continue against me forever? At least you know this. You know that the joy that you once had in the salvation that God had provided you, you don't have that joy right now and you're not sure if you're ever going to get it back. Here's what I know. If we are truly honest Every one of us in this room can recall moments just like this where we felt just like the psalmist. When we looked around at our circumstances and we considered the prospect of where we were and having to deal with the things that we had to deal with, we became discouraged and depressed by what we saw. And in some way, shape, or form, we can identify with the words of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow in a poem that our choir and our orchestra has so beautifully sang some of the words to in our Christmas program. Wadsworth Longfellow wrote this. He says, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. that's where you are, here's what I want you to know. Just because when you look around, you are confronted with situations and circumstances that are difficult and hard to understand does not mean that your look back is invalid. Hear me. Your look around you currently right now does not invalidate the look back. In fact, that's where you have to start. 
in the middle of the trouble and the struggle of your life, the first thing to do is just what this psalmist did. It's to look back to the cross. It's to look back to what Jesus has done for you. It's to look back and remind yourself that every bit of what you have in this life is rooted completely in Christ, that he has forgiven you of your sins, that he has given you hope for the future, and that even in the moment when it doesn't feel like it, God has already done for you everything that is necessary to bring you from darkness to light, it starts there. And as such, you need to remind yourselves of God's sovereign power and His unfailing love. I mentioned last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 40, the first 11 verses. The beautiful part of that chapter is that it goes on and when it gets to the end, you get to this, this understanding that it's a passage very similar to what we read here in Psalm 85. The prophet there recounts some questions that the people of God were asking questions that reveal the fact that the circumstances that they were facing were difficult and they were challenging. And the prophet writes this, he says, Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Such questions, when they looked around, reveal the fact that these people were disappointed. They were discouraged by what they saw. They were anxious over. They were even upset by their circumstances. Such questions reveal that they had not thoroughly comprehended God's sovereignty. The prophet goes on to ask some questions of his own. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, he is understand, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait upon the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Listen, in the midst of the circumstances, the prophet Isaiah reminds the people of the fact that God is omniscient. He is omnipotent. He is the sovereign God of the universe in whom they can trust and in whom they can tap into for their strength. Longfellow came to the same conclusion when he lifted his despairing head and he looked at things from God's perspective and he wrote the final stanza to his poem. He said, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I want you to know that what we learn it's reiterated for us right here in Psalm 85 because we're reminded that in the times of our struggles and in the times of our distress, we can rest upon God's unfailing love. Look with me once more at verse 7. He says, show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. That word that's translated mercy there is the Hebrew word Hesed, we've looked at it before. It, it carries the connotation of, of steadfast love, of everlasting faithfulness, of, of, of everlasting kindness. And it is to this mercy that the author pleads in light of what he sees when he looks around. Let me just say this to you, that it is the same sovereign God of unfailing kindness and mercy that you and I must look to when we are overwhelmed by our current circumstances. 
The same God who by His grace and by His mercy saved you from your sins by delivering you, by forgiving you, by the atoning work of Jesus. The one who turned His wrath away from you because of Christ. He will also be the same one who restores you and revives you through His sovereign power and through His tender, steadfast, unfailing love. Now the psalmist has looked back upon what was done for him and for his people in the past. He is, he's looked around at the circumstances of his present and then we see that he says in verse 8 that he will wait on God so that he might hear what God says and in that we get the third movement and the third movement is a look forward. It's a look forward. Notice verse 8 that the psalmist declares his expectation of what God will say and even in there, there is hope, there is faith. Do you realize? He, I expect God to say this to me. I will hear what God the Lord will speak for. He will speak peace to his people and to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. I love that little line there because it gives us an understanding about something. Maybe you've seen this on on a church sign somewhere or maybe on a bumper sticker somewhere along the way. Alex, put that up for us. I want them to see this. You've seen this where it comes. um, Somebody up there put it up on the screen for us. There we go. No God... No peace. But no God. There's no peace. You've seen that before somewhere? Here's what that means. Those who know God and are among His saints will know the perfect peace that God brings. But those who do not, those who refuse Him, those who, whose faith and trust are not in Him, the psalmist says, those who turn back to folly, well, they will not know His peace. Prophet Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah chapter 57. He says, those who trust in the Lord will be given comfort and will be given peace. But in verse 21 of that same passage, he says, there is no peace for the wicked. Again, I think it's important to note that the peace that Isaiah is speaking of and the peace that the psalmist is referring to here is the one that you and and I need to have as well. It involves the kind of tranquility that comes from knowing who you are and who you depend upon. It's the kind of peace that involves the kind of prosperity that arises out of of not from accumulation of material possessions, but from knowing that, that you have a thankful spirit for what God has blessed you with. It's the kind of peace that involves the security that comes from faith that God loves you and that He will provide for every need that you have. One has put it this way. Here in Psalm 85, the psalmist anticipates the complete Restoration of shalom, of peace for the Israelites. Wholeness, peace, purpose in living, protection, mental and spiritual wellness. In short, the writer says he anticipates the coming of the Messiah. Consequently, we could go rightly say that if you know Christ, if you know Jesus, then you can know peace. But if you do not know Jesus, you will never know peace. Now, if we go back, to that way that I propose this psalm would have been sung. It's right about here is where everything really picks up. Because now we're getting to the crescendo of this psalm. And here's where both choirs 
start singing toward one another across the congregation. And the soloist is leading out. And when he leads out, they all begin to lift their voices together and the sheer volume of their voices and the tempo of the song changes back to the major key. And you hear this as he writes there in verse 10, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down. From heaven, Right there in verse 10, we have four attributes of God. And those four attributes of God are said to be in complete, total communion with one another. But they don't couple up the way we might expect. You see, from our way of thinking, mercy and peace go very nicely together. That makes a good little couple. And, and another good couple over here would be righteousness and truth. Those would be great couples, but that's not how the psalmist does it. He says this, it's God's mercy, it's his hesed, it's his loving kindness that couples up with truth. And then secondly, he says it's his righteousness that embraces and kisses peace. And one can imagine that these are just like a husband and a wife dancing together in perfect harmony with one another. This is how God presents himself. And this is why I believe when those attributes of God are presented to being perfectly in union with one another, he's ultimately pointing us to the cross of Calvary. Because you see, God's mercy cannot be administered at the expense of his truth. And likewise, God cannot uphold truth at the expense of his mercy. But the two have met together at Calvary. It was there on Calvary's cross that Jesus died for our sins so that righteousness and peace might kiss one another. You see, by faith in Christ and what he has done, we no longer stand at enmity with God because Christ bore our punishment and thereby satisfied the Father's holy wrath and his just demands against sin. And as a result, peace has been made between us and him. And therefore, as, as Phillips notes, because of Calvary, God can now uphold both his mercy and his truth, both his righteousness and his peace. And as a result, verse 11 indicates the unity we see in God at Calvary allows for there to be unity between God's people and himself. Boyce writes this. He says this verse points to, the, to a state in which God's people live in faithful obedience to God and are blessed by him. And when that happens, salvation has indeed come to a people and the glory of God dwells in their land. And in the final two verses, 12 and 13, the psalmist tells us that the result of that unity will be that the land will yield forth its harvest and that God will prepare the steps of those who love him. And here's what I want you to know. This is the greatest blessing that God promises to any who will turn to him by trusting in Christ. He will order your steps. He will, he will make your way straight. He will bring fruit to your life and you will produce it in abundance because of him. Is this a health and wealth gospel that I'm preaching? Absolutely not. What it is, in fact, though, is a picture of what God promises to do in the souls of human beings who turn to him and receive his grace and mercy through his gift of his son. And as such, these verses ultimately point us to the peace that the Lord promises when he will restore all things. When he comes again, all that is broken will be healed. All discord will be replaced by heaven's harmonies. 
And as the scriptures teach us in the future kingdom that Christ has already inaugurated and upon which we wait, the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 11 verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. Brothers and sisters, this is what a look back and what a look around and what a look forward will do for you in the middle of your circumstances. And it leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. Christmas reminds us that Christ came to secure our peace through his death and resurrection, that we can live at peace in the present despite our struggles and circumstances, and that he has given us hope for lasting peace in the future. Brothers and sisters, this is the peace of Christmas. It is the confidence that we have that Christ has done and he is, what he has done is made peace between sinners like you and me and a holy God, a holy and righteous God. It is the assurance that even in the difficulties that we face in this present life, that he is still accomplishing our good for his glory. And that even though we may not be able to understand or even appreciate all that he is doing, we know that he is sovereign. And we know that he is an enduringly faithful and merciful. And it is the hope that we have that he will one day return. And he will fix everything that's broken. He will straighten everything that's crooked. He will heal the sick and bring eternal lasting peace to our lives. And I want you to know that's what Advent pushes us toward. It's what causes us to look to Christ, to wait upon him and to hope in him. The peace, the only peace that Jesus can bring. The question is, do you have that peace today? I want you to know it's available to all who will humble themselves before the Lord and receive his gift of mercy and grace. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it's for the people. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are our peace. You're our peace that brings peace between us and God. You are the peace that passes all understanding in the middle of our struggles and our turmoil. You are the peace that we long for. And at this time of year, I pray that our hearts would be tuned toward you that we would be laser focused on the fact that that's what you came to provide, not some, not some ridiculous thing that our world tries to tell us, not, not the lies that Satan would have us buy into, but the truth that you are the peace that we truly long for, and you are the one that can satisfy every need that we have. I pray that our hearts would be tuned toward you. If there's one here this morning that does not have that peace in their heart because they've never come to trust you, as their Lord and Savior, I pray that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction upon them today. Conviction of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come, but also the hope of knowing that they can have that assurance. I pray that you would bring that peace into their hearts today. Lord, for those that are struggling and hurting, I pray for peace for them. They might turn to you, the only true source of peace, and that they would find you there waiting for them. Father, thank you for all that you do for us, and we love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.